This is the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast. I'm Monique Mitchelson, and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Levoque, and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Ilvana Jarfich. Ilvana is a clinical neuroscience researcher working at Origin and the Centre for Youth Mental Health at the University of Melbourne. In her research, she uses neuroimaging and mathematical models to explore the psychosis continuum, how psychotic symptoms emerge, and if we can use neuroimaging to improve diagnosis and treatment for those experiencing psychosis. Ilvana completed her PhD in neuroscience at the University of Queensland, where she investigated social processing differences in people with schizophrenia and the influence of brain connections and genetics. We are so excited to have Ilvana on the podcast today to talk about all things psychosis and schizophrenia and basically just to unpack this incredibly complicated and not well understood topic of psychosis. So thanks so much for coming on. No problem. Thank you for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about what is the psychosis continuum? You know, I noticed that come up a lot in in your research. Yes. In my research, we wanted to look at psychosis on a continuum. Uh, So not just in people that are diagnosed with disorders like schizophrenia, but does it actually happen uh, in the general population, non-clinical, so-called, you know, healthy people experience psychotic um, experiences. And I guess recently this idea has been gaining traction. However, it's still quite controversial, especially when uh, you talk to some clinicians that have more traditional views of, you know, mental health being at a dichotomy between either someone's healthy or they have a disorder. Uh, also, it's not widely known that, you know, people even in the general public can have some degree of these experiences. Mm. We wanted to explore this further and also look at the brain and, you know, are there some brain changes that occur on the psychosis continuum as well. So just to, I guess, show how common it is in the general population. So about 2% of people are actually diagnosed with a psychotic disorder like schizophrenia. And about 18% of the population have experienced subclinical psychotic experiences. So these might be like a bit milder, Mm -hmm. or maybe they, you know, happened a few times, but didn't continue happening. But all these people, I guess, fall onto this psychosis continuum, which goes from, you know, not having any experiences at all to, I guess, chronic schizophrenia, uh, where you have a acute psychosis. Wow. I mean, just hearing that 18% of the population has had, you know, some sort of subclinical psychotic experience. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought it would be that many people. Mm. Yeah, definitely. When I was presenting some of my work at conferences, uh, like, for example, I went to Geneva in Switzerland, and I went to Singapore. And just like even talking to some of the scientists, they were like, oh, I didn't realize, you know, so many people were having these experiences. And then they were telling me about their personal stories how they've had these experiences and they kind of haven't told anyone because, you know, there is a bit of a stigma associated (laughs) with that. 
So what would be like an example of a kind of subclinical experience that, you know, some people might have? Yep. So for example, in our research, we found that it was really common to have persecutory type beliefs and grandiose type beliefs. So persecutory beliefs would be, you know, feeling like without any concrete evidence, feeling like someone that you know is against you in some way Mm. or talking behind your back, for example, or someone's out to get you at work or something like that. So that wasn't that uncommon, actually, in the general population. I I believe that. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, what if it's actually true? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean... Well, I guess the key there is without any concrete evidence. But (laughs) That's right. That's right. But, you know, most people every now and again, when they're in stressful situations or maybe they haven't gotten along with someone, maybe they might have these thoughts. The other one, the grandiose belief. So this is the belief that you are superior in some ways or unique compared to others. So this is, I guess, a nicer kind of belief to have (laughs) about yourself in milder forms you know this is might be seen as positive but then uh, grandiose delusions can be the belief that you know you're uh, God's angel and Mm. it can turn into something not so positive if your mission is a little bit uh yeah negative or you know if your mission is to do harm or something like that sure that's so fascinating that you use those things as examples Ilva because normally when we would think okay a psychotic episode or you know something that is not reality immediately I think people's minds my mind certainly goes towards like an auditory hallucination or a visual hallucination but it's interesting that you flag there that these kind of psychotic episodes or subclinical psychotic features can also be thought-based. Oh, yeah. So they're more related to, I guess, the delusions. Uh, We did also have people, just non-clinical people, just general, you know, most of them were like students at uni that participated Mm. in our study, um, report uh, mild hallucinations as well. So, Uh, A common one was actually feeling like bugs were crawling on your skin Mm. when when they aren't. And then also a few people reported hearing things that other people couldn't hear. But, you know, it was, I guess it wasn't as frequent. Maybe it wasn't as distressing because these people never really sought help for, you know, these experiences. Mm -hmm. So I wonder too, with some of these more, as we might say, subclinical um, beliefs or hallucinations or delusions, is an element of it or part of it that makes it subclinical some sense or understanding that it's not real? What I mean by that is I've had an experience of like, oh, there's something crawling on my skin and I've looked and there's nothing there. And in my mind, I've immediately been like, oh, I just imagined that. Like at no point was I like, okay, well, it's not there, but it is also real. So I'm just wondering, is there a line there between, or is one of the lines that makes something subclinical versus clinical? um, Yeah. Your kind of perception of the reality of that experience. Yeah. So I 
uh, I think what you're getting at is like insight, right? Mm-hmm. That you have mm-hmm. insight that this was just kind of like your imagination. It yeah. didn't actually happen. People uh, that have insight and awareness that this is not real would probably not be distressed so much by it, mm-hmm. right? I have also had uh, people with schizophrenia in my studies that have insight into their symptoms, that they they know they've been diagnosed with schizophrenia and they know that these voices are not real and they still have these voices. Mm. And it's really interesting. I did have a person that he had the insight that these were not real voices still kept happening to him. And during uh, one of our research studies, in order to be able to do the tasks that we had him doing, he had to constantly speak to his voice to like calm it down so he could concentrate on the task. So he was constantly saying, yes, yes, okay, 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 whatever, um, to his voice just to so it would leave him alone. Mm. But he he knew, he had a lot of insight and he knew that that wasn't you know, that that was uh, uh, his hallucination, but it was still there. Yeah. Yeah, So it's a tricky thing. It's really tricky. Yeah. Mm. And I think um, this is where the social model of disability and like the neurodiversity framework can sometimes come in at really raising questions around like what is a disability Um, Mm. because people can have different experiences, but normally when we look at the word disorder or disability, it's whether it's causing them distress or harm, or they're finding functioning in society as it currently is now is really difficult. So yeah, I think it's interesting to look at, yeah, the sub threshold, I guess, some of these symptoms of psychosis or experiences versus people in on that clinical level um, of experiencing psychosis. And Mm. we see that in the neurodiversity model and the social model of disability, which is about, okay, well, yeah, what's causing you harm? um, What's causing you distress? And is also the way the world is at the moment contributing to that and making what you have a disability? Yes, totally. So I guess just on that, Ilvana, how does psychosis, um, psychotic experiences fit into the neurodiversity framework in your opinion? Yeah. So I guess in, I feel like in many different ways. So I just discussed the psychosis continuum and the fact that, you know, some psychotic like experiences do occur generally and not just in the pathological sense. And this kind of makes sense because, there is no such thing as a schizophrenia or psychosis gene or mm. genes. Once we thought there was, but you know now we know there isn't. And in fact, large international studies have uncovered many genes which increase the risk of developing schizophrenia. And in one of my studies, I actually looked at the genetic risk for schizophrenia in people that have never, you know, don't have schizophrenia, never been diagnosed. So all of us have some schizophrenia risk genes. Some of us have more of these uh, genes and some have less. So we all have some level, you know, of susceptibility to psychosis. And my research found that in those people with greater genetic susceptibility for schizophrenia, they overactivated uh, emotional brain areas when they were viewing threatening faces. So maybe in people experiencing psychosis, they have an increased experience of fear. This is just one mm. theory. Mm. 
but yeah, there are definitely differences in the brain along the psychosis continuum. And other studies have shown this. This is just an example of what my study found. But going further, and I, th I think we'll talk about this later, um, you know, even in some cultures, psychosis is viewed in a very different way, even mm -hmm. in a positive light. Psychosis has been explored as a compensatory mechanism in people and even as a potential defense mechanism. So, for example, grandiose delusions uh, have been su suggested to be a defense mechanism against like otherwise low self-esteem or depression, things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's uh, not very clear cut that, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. whether psychosis should be just mainly looked at in the pathological sense when mm -hmm. there are also these other factors at play. Yeah. And I guess it's interesting with all the research coming out around schizophrenia previously in modern Western society, it's been seen as a mental illness um, and it's been seen as something that has been quite pathologized um, and seen in a negative light with a stigma around it. But I guess looking at it as, okay, this is, you know, a brain difference um, where people have, you know, more risk with certain genes of having these experiences. We can, I guess, take a less pathologizing model of schizophrenia and look at, okay, yeah, it's just part of that neurodiversity continuum, basically, of having a different brain, different experience. Yeah, it sounds like from what you were saying, Ilvana, that there are many paths to the same destination. So two people, you know, experiencing what we might think of as psychotic features or symptoms, they might have got there for two totally different reasons. You know, you're talking about as a protective mechanism. And I know, and, and probably Monique, you're, you're best place to chat a little bit about this, but I wonder, you know, the risk of developing things like psychosis or psychotic features, if that increases, you know, if you've got a trauma history, mm -hmm. um, if, you know, trauma can activate some of that. We've touched on that different perception of things like psychosis in different cultures. And I wonder if there's positive cultural experiences that people in other cultures might experience, which might then increase their, you know, likelihood of developing psychotic features or symptoms. So, you know, we've got environmental factors and we've also got genetic susceptibility um, mm. to that as well. And yeah, I think talking about the, the neurodiversity paradigm, um, a lot of people will think that neurodiversity is just about autism and ADHD, but actually the woman who originally coined the label of neurodiversity, Judy Singer, and she's actually Australian. Yeah, she meant more than just developmental differences um, and included things like schizophrenia under the umbrella of neurodiversity. I think that makes uh, I mean, I think that makes total sense. I think now we're starting to really shift our view of all these conditions. I mean, the stats are now that one in four people will experience some kind of condition in their life, some kind mm. of symptoms, some kind of either mental illness or something else. So we can't just say everyone's <laughs> disordered, sure. right? Yeah, for sure. <laughs>
So we've chatted a little bit about this idea of cultural differences in the way that psychotic symptoms or features are perceived. Ilvana, is there any research into that or is there any kind of anything that we know about those differences? Yeah, so there was actually uh, recently a study by an anthropologist, uh, Lerman, and his colleagues who were psychiatrists. And what they did was they interviewed people that had auditory hallucinations and then they met the criteria for schizophrenia uh, living in America and then group of people living in India and then another group of people living in Ghana as well. And they found some interesting things where, you know, it shows how kind of our Western perception of mental illness also paves the road for someone that's having these experiences, right? So what they found is that the people in America that were hearing the voices, they were more likely to report violent themes. So uh, receiving commands to do violent things to other people or very traumatic experiences, they always saw their voices in a very negative light, very distressing. And they also saw themselves as sick, disordered. They they would, you know, talk about their voices in terms of them having an illness, I guess. Whereas in comparison, the people that they spoke to in India and Ghana had a kind of like a different uh, perception of what was happening to them. So they were more likely to also hear voices from, I think, the people in India, from uh, friends and family, or attribute the voices to a kind of family member, like speaking similarly to a family, you know, member, giving them guidance and protection, maybe sometimes, you know, letting them know they've done the wrong thing. But they saw it as, you know, they were just trying to help them out. Uh, I think if the people in Ghana reported more that their voices were spirits or coming from God. But in general, they from India and Ghana reported the voices as being a positive thing. And they were less likely to describe themselves as uh, being sick and this being, you know, a mental illness. God, I just find that so fascinating because I think it really just speaks to how much of our experience is impacted by our culture and impacted also by cultural narrative. If you've got a way to fit our experience within our cultural narrative that makes sense or that has meaning to it, that completely changes our actual felt perception of that experience. Whereas, you know, in our Western society, we have that really medicalized model. If something is not going, quote unquote, the way that it should, then that's a disease pathology. That's something, you know, that's wrong. And of course, that's terrifying. You know, think yeah. that your brain is not working. That's horrifying. I can imagine as well in, I guess, America within the last century or two or longer, People who were different would have been institutionalized, which would have been quite a traumatic um, experience within itself. And then say if you are constantly undergoing trauma and threats in your environment in an institution, I wonder how that's going to affect yeah, the development of your psychotic symptoms. Yeah, that's right. I actually uh, found it 
really interesting because now we're talking about cultures and there is this kind of divide between, you know, Western cultures and, as you say, like um, the medical model and pathologizing things. And if you're, if you're not processing things this, the, the same way as the status quo then or the majority of people, then there's something wrong with you. And then in uh, non-Western cultures, usually, you know, when someone is processing things differently, you know, sometimes it can be seen as that they are gifted or, you know, like, for example, the shamans in indigenous societies, they're considered as experts and guides for that society. And they're seen as healers and people that are very special. Mm -hmm. And when you look at um, the experiences of shamans and also, you know, uh, how someone becomes a shaman, it's through these experiences that are very similar to psychosis, right? So mm-hmm. they they see spirits, they see things that aren't there, they talk to people that aren't there, they have a communication with, you know, another world. They have this belief that they are communicating with the other world as well. I find that really interesting how different cultures can attribute this. But then also um, reading the work by... Uh, Two researchers, Phil Corlett and Albert Powers, who are neuroscientists as well, they looked at even within the Western society, how attributing psychotic experiences uh, differently can change whether you view yourself as ill or not and how distressed you are by these experiences as well. So in one of their studies, they actually investigated uh, a group of psychics who uh, Amazing, you know, yeah, the psychics who are hearing voices, right? Really and here for this. <laughs> <laughs> this group of psychics, they were hearing voices. You know, they were attributing these voices to being the uh, spirit world, coming from the spirit world. In the research, they wanted to test if these psychic voice hearers had similar experiences. Uh, so objectively similar experiences to the auditory hallucinations uh, that people diagnosed with schizophrenia had. Uh, so they had a battery of different measures to systematically test, you know, how these experiences overlap and how they were different. Uh, they also wanted to measure to detect that indeed they were hearing voices that nobody was faking, you know, hearing voices. So they had a test for that. Um, And what they found was nobody was faking voices in this Mm -hmm. group of people that they were examining. They found that both groups had quite similar experiences uh, objectively. So in regards to the loudness of the voices, the location and space of the voices that complexity of what the voices, I guess, were saying, and even different identities of voices. Uh, So they had all these very similar experiences. And then they found that where the differences were between these two groups is that the psychic group perceived their voices as, you know, a a positive spiritual gift. Mm-hmm. So the first time that they started hearing these voices, I guess the um, response that they received was, you know, you're gifted, you're special, mm-hmm. instead of, oh, you're ill, there's something wrong with you. 
Uh, the other difference was that they were less uh, distressing. So the content of the voices was more positive, not non-threatening. And they also, uh, I think, and this is an important thing, they had control over these uh, right. experiences. Okay. I mm. found that really interesting that, you know, even in the Western culture, the way you perceive your experiences becomes your reality kind of thing. Oh, for sure. And I think it all just comes down to what's the framework that you're using to hang your experiences on? You know, if we don't have a positive way, and this is, you know, not just with what we're talking about now, but I think with anything, as human beings, we're always looking to make meaning out of our experiences. You know, what does this mean? Why does this happen? What's going on? How can I fit this within my personal narrative of who I am? And if we're given a framework to understand that, that's quite positive, you know, as you were saying, Ilvana, even people in Western culture, if you are in a particular community or group that has a narrative around being spiritual and and being a psychic and that type of thing, even though it's not the dominant cultural narrative, you have a framework to hang these sort of aberrant experiences on in a positive way. The way that we uh, interpret something, the language we give to it, it's so fascinating how much that shifts our reality, actual perception of reality. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this like shows concretely that, Mm. you know, that's what's happening. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. I think this is a really good time to ask you about the predictive coding theory of the brain, which a lot of your research has centered around because it, I guess it's talking about, yeah, how do our brains predict our experiences? Yeah. And I guess this is the framework that we're using to talk about how the brain works and then exploring how different conditions arise. Um, So the predictive coding theory says that we make sense of our world and what is likely to happen from our previous knowledge and experiences, as well as from what we're sensing. So what we're hearing, what we're seeing, etc. So basically, our brain is a predictive machine rather than just a passive organ, which was, you know, for a long time, we thought the brain was just receiving information and that was it. And it wasn't making its own kind of predictions and things like that. But this framework kind of shows that, you know, we're all hallucinating our reality to some extent. So we don't have direct access to all of our sensory worlds. Otherwise, we will be completely overwhelmed with all the Mm. incoming sounds, all the incoming visual objects, tactile sensations, everything. And I think for a lot of people who are quite uh, sensitive to sensory information and a lot of people on the autism spectrum, that can be part of the reason why existing, you know, in the external world can be so overwhelming because there's so much awareness of all the sensory information, you know, coming in from your surrounds. Yeah, that's right. And actually, that's one of the theories in the predictive coding field and how they differ from people uh, that are experiencing psychosis, that maybe in uh, autism, what is happening is that they overweigh, you know, all the sensory information that's coming in and don't have as much predictive processing on uh, what's coming in, in the sensory world. So the idea is that in autism, maybe there is um, too much attention on sensory things 
So from what we're hearing and seeing, and this could be leading to the sensory overload, for example. In uh, psychosis, this, um, I mean, there's mixed theories about what's happening from predictive coding, but one of the theories is that these predictive processes are biasing They're how they process the world. So their reality is more based on how they believe the world should be rather than what is coming in from the world. I, I kind of wonder if um, when you were talking about autistic people, how potentially there's more of that exposure to the sensory uh, information and maybe a different way of predicted processing. I wonder if that could be part of uh, why a lot of people on the autism spectrum will really want to control that sensory information that's coming in and have, uh, I guess, a, a lot of uh, reaction to change coming into the environment. And a lot of a person on the spectrum's life is around controlling their environment because a new thing coming in is so overwhelming. So, yeah, I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah, for sure, Monique. And I think that's one of the reasons, and this is one of the leading theories around um, why individuals on the autism spectrum experience or tend to experience a much higher rate of anxiety compared to individuals not on the autism spectrum because of the differences in the way that their predictive coding works. So exactly as Ilvana was saying, mm -hmm. you know, because there's so much attention and perception on every single or, you know, multiple elements um, coming from externally, you know, it being inputted in, you know, I thought that was a really interesting way that you explain that, Ilvana. It's like they're over-focusing on the external input. And that means that there's so much information that's coming in that it's difficult to draw generalized predictive models. And without yes. having a generalized predictive yes. model, that means that every single situation that you're entering into is a brand new situation, which obviously, is anxiety provoking, right? Everyone feels anxious in that, you know, going into a new situation. So it's really fascinating that you're explaining to us, Silvana, that uh, individuals who are experiencing psychosis often are having the reverse happen. Could you um, go into that a little bit further? Yeah, for sure. I'll just go a little bit backwards yeah, and explain what the predictive coding theory looks like at the brain level. Predictive coding is saying, our predictions are encoded at higher levels in the brain, for example, in frontal regions, and are sent as predictive signals to lower levels of the brain, like, for example, the visual brain regions. But whenever incoming information from the world uh, violates what we predict, so we're predicting we're going to see the color orange and then yellow comes up. A prediction error signal is actually sent up from those lower brain regions and changes our predictive model of the world to make it more in, in line with what is actually happening. But if you constantly, like in the autistic brain, have these prediction errors coming up, changing your predictive model, you never have this, you know, as you're saying, this general predictive model, which you can go into the world and kind of navigate the world with in a more simplified way. Uh, what we think is happening in psychosis is that the world appears noisy and chaotic because there's less ability to learn 
the probabilities of the world, creating a more chaotic, noisy world. And also our research has found this. So people with more psychotic experiences, even in the general population, so even non-diagnosed people, Mm -hmm. but especially people with more severe psychotic experiences, have poorer learning about the probabilities in the world. So we looked at sounds, probability of sounds. Uh, We found that was related to reduced connectivity in brain regions that are very important for making sense of sounds. But because of this, I guess the theory is that people experiencing psychosis compensate by making their own beliefs about the world. So not from the actual land probabilities, but their own beliefs. And once, you know, they make this belief, it offers some insight relief from all the chaos that they were experiencing. Mm -hmm. And then this belief or interpretation about the world is called on again and again Mm -hmm. when the person is, you know, in a state of confusion, when something is going on, they don't understand it. And after a while, this belief is, I guess, consolidated and it becomes their reality. So Alana, tell me if I've got this right. So basically an individual who is likely to experience psychosis, even at a subclinical level, they have got the external inputs coming in, you know, so from say, for example, their five senses, that input comes in, there's no, there's not necessarily any issue with their hearing or their vision, for example. Yeah. But once that's in the brain, the brain at these kind of evolutionarily lower level kind of functions, so visual processing, auditory processing, kind of making sense of those inputs, because there's less connections or differences in the connectivity of those regions, um, that information isn't being sent up to those higher order thinking zones in a way that would enable that person to make accurate predictions or models about the world around them. So because that input information is kind of held quite chaotically down in those lower level processing zones still, those higher order zones say, well, F this, I'm just going to make up my own model um, (laughs) and come up with their own model. And then that model gets applied again and again and again, which in that person's mind increases the reliability of that model. Yeah, definitely. That's a way to look at it. So that's like one theory, I guess, that there's there's problems with updating the model. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of chaos going on. There's problems with updating the model, the predictive model of the world. And because of that, you know, there's a compensation. There's a compensation for that where the person creates their own interpretation of what is going on to help them in a way, right? That's where, you know, this kind of idea that maybe some delusions are compensatory. And then also why are delusions, why do they seem to be threat related a lot of the time? Well, if you think about it, if you're in a chaotic situation, the worst thing that can happen is something threatening to jump out at you or something threatening to be ha- to happen to you. So you need to be prepared for that. Mm. So your safest bet is to have a belief something threatening is going to happen. So you are on the lookout for that. It actually sounds a bit like hypervigilance, but within the brain, you know, constantly yeah. being hypervigilant that a threat's going to happen. Yeah, that's and then right. keeping keeping yourself safe. Hi, Michelle here. If you're interested in learning more about autism, come along to my next online webinar on understanding autism, held on the 24th of February 
at 6pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. This 90-minute webinar is aimed at parents of children on the autism spectrum. We cover what is autism, how is the autistic brain different, differences between boys and girls on the spectrum, language, communication, stress and meltdowns, and strategies to support regulation and functioning for children on the autism spectrum. If you would like to sign up or find out more about this or other upcoming webinars, including neurodivergence and learning, women on the spectrum, and understanding ADHD, visit the group's page on the Redland Psychologist website, redlandpsychologists.com.au forward slash groups. There'll be a link in the show notes to the episode. You mentioned that there's other models or other kind of things that can drive these types of experiences. Could you just step us through what some of those might be? So I guess what I spoke about before, uh, where this, you know, predictive processing is aberrant. So the person is essentially processing the world more in line with their predictions rather than what they actually are hearing and seeing. But there are other uh, theories about why these auditory hallucinations might come up that are um, kind of opposing to this because this one's saying that people uh, experiencing psychosis have very strong predictions, whereas this one's more about weaker prediction. This has to do with uh, something called corollary discharge. So this involves brain signals being sent in preparation of something that you're actually going to do or say or experience. It actually allows us to predict uh, what we will do and compare it with what we actually do. It enables us to know what we're perceiving is self-generated rather than generated from something else or someone else. So what research has found is that people with schizophrenia have less of this uh, mechanism, which, uh, for example, can lead to poorer prediction of their own speaking. But this may actually extend to inner speech. So people with schizophrenia may not be able to perceive their own inner voice as being self-generated but rather externally generated. So this is a theory of why auditory hallucinations uh, might arise. And it might be that the person is actually thinking these things, Mm. but perceiving it as an outside voice, right? right? I find this really interesting because this mechanism is also why some people with schizophrenia are able to tickle themselves. So usually (laughs) that sounds horrifying. (laughs) So usually, you know, we aren't able to tickle ourselves because Mm. we can predict our own touch and mode of movement so well, but maybe because this corollary discharge is disrupted in schizophrenia, you know, some people on the schizophrenia spectrum are able to tickle themselves and not able to predict that they're doing that (laughs) so well. So would you say that, you know, and this is just totally, you know, random, but would we be able to use this, I guess, as in a potential assessment for schizophrenia, like getting (laughs) getting people to tickle themselves and if they can do it, it's like, hmm, maybe you should probably get this checked out. Right now everyone is trying to tickle themselves. Everyone do it now. Yeah. (laughs) I don't actually know, you know, how 
common, these disturbances. And, you know, also right now I'm just focusing on hallucinations, right? mainly hallucinations, some delusions, but these are the positive symptoms of psychosis and schizophrenia. But people with schizophrenia, I mean, this is such an umbrella term and they experience other symptoms as well, like these negative symptoms, which are a lack of pleasure, you know, flat demeanor, not, not expressing emotions, being socially withdrawn all these other um, symptoms that are actually more deteriorating to the functioning of the individual than these more observable uh, positive symptoms. So I don't think something like tickling will be able to use to really determine if someone (laughs) has schizophrenia or not because it would be like a very limited group that would have this. Sure. Mm -hmm. Also, we should probably just flag as well that when we use the terminology of positive symptoms and negative symptoms, it doesn't necessarily mean that positive symptoms are good and negative symptoms are bad. It means it in the sense of positive symptoms are adding something to your experience. So like a hallucination or a belief or something like that, whereas negative symptoms are taking away something from your experience. So loss of pleasure, depression, things like that. And, you know, exactly as as you were saying, Ilvana, uh, schizophrenia is such a diverse um, condition where people can be experiencing a whole different range of features. So, Ilvana, you were saying earlier that one of these kind of models or theories around psychosis is that difficulty predicting, you know, what's coming in from an external sense and what's something that you are self-generating. And you use the example of people not being able to predict their own speech. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean by that and what that would look like, someone who struggles to predict their speech? This is actually using electroencephalography, so EEG. Uh, That's how we're measuring it. And it's an EEG component called N1 suppression. And what we find is that people with schizophrenia, their EEG signal, I guess, is much more similar when they're talking compared to when they're listening to Mm -hmm. someone. Mm -hmm. Whereas someone that doesn't have a diagnosis of uh, schizophrenia, their N1 is very different when you look at them talking compared to them listening to someone else. Sure. So when you say kind of difficulty predicting their own speech, this is sort of occurring at a cellular level where we're seeing differences in the way that the cells respond and fire in the brain, you know, when they're speaking versus when they're listening. And it sounds like that's probably what's driving some of that difficulty that you were talking about earlier around, you know, is this voice that I'm hearing coming from inside my brain or is it coming from outside my brain? If they're essentially having the exact same cellular response, irrespective of whether they're listening or talking. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So at the, at the brain level, I guess, yes, if the response, the brain response is more similar Uh, when you're talking compared to when you're listening to someone else talking, you're not Mm. going to be able to um, distinguish, Mm. you know. Mm. Yeah. And then, you know, the theory is that they have this problem in the predictive processing that this mm-hmm. voice is coming from them. It's self-generated. It's really interesting because you were saying earlier around how, you know, at face value, it sort of seems like the two theories that you've chatted about today, you know, that predictive coding theory, and then um, this one that 
talks about, you know, difficulty making predictions. It seems like at face value that they are in contrast, but as you actually explain it and go through it, actually I can understand how they could both be at play, right? It's sort of like, you know, difficulty making predictions based on incoming information um, and having your predictive models be updated by the, you know, external information. And that also fits with this idea that you have difficulty distinguishing between what's self-generated information and what's external input information. Yeah, that's that's completely right. I mean, and even now, you know, initially they thought all this um, evidence was contradictory, you know, mm. opposing. Uh, but now they've kind of uh, joined everything together and mm. the predictive coding field has said, look, these, these things actually align. So talking about, I guess, yeah, like there's differences in different processes in the brain. Can you tell us if there are any differences between men and women's experiences of psychotic symptoms? So the most clear-cut difference between the genders is onset. With men, usually it's earlier. Usually it's three to five years earlier than uh, the onset of uh, symptoms than in women. And men only have one peak. So their onset is between the ages of 21 to 25 approximately, and that's it. Whereas women actually have two peaks in the onset of symptoms. So the first one is between the ages of 25 to 30 approximately. And then there's a later peak after the age of 40, 45. So that's the most clear cut. I wonder um, if those peaks correlate with hormonal fluctuations. Mm. Like, um, Like with the men, you can see like... Yeah, maybe there's some hormonal stuff going on around that age. But then with women, um, like a lot of women will have like a continued um, hormonal stuff going on in their late 20s and early 30s. And that's when a lot of people will have children. And then when you see there's another one at 45, that's when a lot of uh, women will be going into menopause. Yeah, that's definitely been a theory and it has been looked at as well. I am not too familiar with that research. From what I have read, it's not really uh, definitive or they haven't found like a definitive thing of why uh, there's different onsets. But yeah, this is not my area. So I'm not 100% sure. Besides the onset, there are also some differences in the symptoms of schizophrenia, where men tend to have more negative symptoms and more severe presentations, especially, you know, in terms of like social withdrawal and then abusing substances as well um, and comorbid substance abuse Mm. disorders. While women uh, tend to have more mood disturbances and depression symptoms, studies have also found that women generally have better um, pre-morbid functioning, so before the onset, and they have better, you know, social functioning. And all these things are associated with a better prognosis for women later on, which I think mm-hmm. is 
really important and it shows how valuable actually having a good social support system is. Following on from that, I guess it's not surprising that often more men uh, tend to be institutionalized. They have higher relapse rates and then women, you know, they have better um, response to medication. They have higher remission rates and so mm. on. That's really interesting. And I wonder if, and, and interested to hear what you think about this, Ilvana, I wonder if part of that, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier today around having a framework, you know, having a narrative that we can hang these experiences on, I wonder if part of that difference between the experience between men and women is it tends to be more socially acceptable for women to speak about their feelings and their experiences and talk about what's going on for them, you know, with their social circle. Whereas, you know, historically there's been quite a stigma around men sharing, you know, what's going on for me, what's my experience. And for something like perceptual hallucination, which could be perceived, particularly in our culture, as quite strange or weird or, you know, you're going crazy, I can see how a lot of men might feel quite isolated by that experience and think, well, I absolutely can't tell, you know, if I can't even tell someone that I'm feeling sad sometimes, um, I definitely can't tell someone that I'm seeing things that aren't here or hearing things that aren't here. And I wonder if that contributes to their outcomes. I agree with you. I think that would have a huge, huge influence. And just also, you know, the stigma around, you know, a male maybe that's going through psychotic illness. From what we see in movies, they show it as someone who's very violent and hurting others. Mm. And, you know, maybe you wouldn't want to share to your employer that you've been diagnosed with schizophrenia because maybe they would see you in the slide. Maybe you wouldn't want to tell your, um, you know, partner's parents that you yeah. have been diagnosed with schizophrenia because maybe then, you know, they'll see you in a completely different mm -hmm. light. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it does seem like men tend to have it a bit harder in general when it comes to... <laughs> you heard it here first, <laughs> Ilvana, yeah. men have it harder. <laughs> <laughs> with schizophrenia yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess this is part of why like having these conversations around schizophrenia and psychosis are so important like unpacking some of the cultural framework around it and actually understanding the research and what actually is going on for people um and, and yeah depathologizing it a little bit mm. mm. yeah a hundred percent and you know like um there I don't know if uh you've come across this and we don't need to put it into the thing but uh there used to be a group called mad pride no I've never heard uh, of it I've heard of it kind, yeah you've heard of it it's kind of like on the lines of you know gay pride um where it's a celebration of your kind of differences and mm. the condition that you've been diagnosed with or that you you have and taking back words that are used to stigmatize you. Like, for example, you're mad, you're nuts, you're crazy, all these things that have been used as in a malicious way with bad yeah. intent, taking that back and like, taking ownership over it and saying mad pride. I, mm. I'm proud to be the way that I am. Yeah. I love I that. I think they're, Im mm. they're important uh, movements like that, you know, especially 
uh, for people that don't feel so safe, you know, uh, being open um, mm. about what they're going through, uh, to have support groups. And there's now there's support groups out there, definitely. I mean, the place that I work at, they're very, you know, open and welcoming. So this is, you know, headspaces, um, headspace centers and origin. They want people to feel safe about sharing their experiences and mm. their concerns. Yeah, I think, you know, having that space to have, you know, pride in your experience and say, you know, this actually is an okay part of me can go some way to healing that sort of absolutely shattered sense of self that a lot lot of people who have any kind of difference experience. And from a purely um, dollars and cents cost budget analysis, this is why things like not prioritizing or giving funding to mental health supports just baffles me because you even just look at the bottom dollar and it's ridiculous. But anyway, purely from that sort of policy perspective, the more people feel like they have a community, the more people just like themselves, the more people feel like they have worth and value and purpose in society the less harm they cause. Someone who is in extreme distress is much more likely to inflict harm of any kind to themselves and to society than someone who is not in extreme distress. And that is just such a obvious elementary grade logical argument that it just baffles me why policymakers don't direct more funding and more funds into support for people who are experiencing distress. Yeah, definitely. So our last question today is, Ilvana, have you ever experienced any disturbance in your perception or any psychotic symptoms? Yes. So (laughs) short answer, (laughs) yes. (laughs) To be, you know, when I uh, started this, uh, I guess, work into the psychosis continuum, to me, I thought that certain experiences that I've had, they weren't anything like something that someone with schizophrenia would experience, right? You don't, I think even someone having a psychotic episode, it's really takes a while for them to accept that this is what has happened. You know, they've had a psychotic episode because, you know, you only have one reality, right? Anyway, so I guess I have, like, as a child, and actually psychotic-like experiences are very common in children. Mm. Um, People don't know this, but they're actually quite common in children. Uh, I remember, like, as a child, even, you know, seeing, like, little cartoon characters on my blinds while I was Mm. going to sleep. So just before sleep as well, it can happen that you can have some kind of perceptual disturbances. I I remember vividly those kinds of things, experiences as a child. And what was your feeling about that? Like, do you remember if that was scary or you were like, oh, cool? (laughs) Or what were you thinking (laughs) when that happened? That was scary. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Because it was like, I I remember this is going to be weird, but anyway, um, it was like a little leprechaun and it Uh was (laughs) yeah menacing and laughing at me so I don't know where that came from like you know I'm 
originally from Bosnia. I don't know where we would have leprechauns. Maybe <laughs> I saw something on the TV or something like that, but I don't know where that idea came into my mind yeah. as a child. Uh, but then, you know, like I was going to say, even as an adult, uh, when I've had a really uh, stressful experience, I have had some kind of psychotic-like experiences where I've misinterpreted what someone has said to be, you know, something innocuous, to be quite threatening, you know, have had an increase of those persecutory type beliefs where thinking that people, you know, they're not Mm. on my side and um, they're against me or things like that. And it's in these stressful situations that I've had some of these experiences. This has happened just in certain moments, maybe twice or three times in my life. And it wasn't ever as severe as uh, clinical, I guess, hallucinations and delusions can be. But it was interesting to see these experiences from a different light. Whereas, you know, uh, before I went into this research, I just thought, oh, yeah, this is just me having a bit of a bad time and having these Mm. sensations. Now I'm like, actually, these are psychotic-like experiences. You know, if they carried on and became as distressing, I would be seeking help. It's on that continuum, I guess. Yeah, Mm, absolutely. And can you tell us about one occasion where you thought someone swore at you? So, so to give like a specific example, I remember once I was in a very, very stressful and um, upsetting situation and I had to speak to a lawyer and this was uh, just, you know, in Brisbane speaking to an Aussie guy, right? And he wasn't very helpful. And this was to do with my dad getting, because my dad's in Bosnia, my dad getting a visa to come to Australia. So it was really stressful. And I just wanted to, you know, see my dad and get it all done. And it was costing a lot of money. And the guy, the lawyer, he was just very unhelpful. And I swear I heard him swear at me. I'm convinced I heard him swear at me in Bosnian, even though that's completely not possible. But even, you know, when I was on the phone with him and when I thought that he had sworn at me in Bosnian, even, you know, questioned him. I was like, did you just say, did you just swear at me? (laughs) And he he was like, no, I did not. (laughs) No, I did not. (laughs) But to me, you know, that swear word that I thought I heard him say, it was as loud and clear as, you know, your voices right now. Mm-hmm. So it was it was definitely a hallucination. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely heard that, but there's no possible way that he could have said that. So thinking, I guess, about, you know, the models that we've been talking about today, um, I think it's fascinating to sort of apply these models, you know, in context. So what would you say um, as a professional um, was sort of going on there in terms of your predictive coding of the situation? Well, you know, I've thought about it. After it happened, I thought about it a little bit. And, you know, what kind of model was in Mm -hmm. my brain? So I guess this guy was not very nice to me. I could expect, you know, him to swear at me, maybe even to think, think 
um, like that was in his mind. Maybe that was in my mind that I wanted to swear at him. <laughs> because, <laughs> there we go. There we go. <laughs> you know what I mean? It all then, comes out. <laughs> and then, you know, being associated with my dad, who's in Bosnia, maybe that's how, you know, the Bosnian swear word ca- sure. came out because I was thinking about my dad during this conversation. Uh, so maybe that's how it happened. You know, sure. maybe I've just uh, thought it that this is, what's going to happen and then I actually heard it but yeah who knows so it's really interesting your explanation there because it kind of sounds like from what you're saying that basically you were in this situation that was stressful and we know that our ability to engage in kind of logical thought and our social processing deteriorates when we're in stressful situations so it sounds like in this high stress situation your social processing is probably going downhill a little bit and you've got all these competing thoughts and ideas and things going on in your mind and what was going on in your mind and what was happening externally, kind of like what you were explaining earlier today, got a little bit jumbled up. And then that made it really difficult for you to differentiate or distinguish between what's happening in my mind right now and what's actually happening externally. What's the external input? That could be the thing. Yeah, it mm. could be that I had some issues with my corollary discharge mechanism, right? Right. It could be that that wasn't actually picking up my, um, you know, my inner speech. Mm. Mm. I don't know. I mean, it could be that. Or or he speaks Bosnian and he swore at you in Bosnian. <laughs> and he never told me. <laughs> and he just denied it. He knew that I was going, he knew that I had such a stressful time and he yeah. wanted to mess with me. <laughs> yeah. He's listening now and he's like, got away Very, with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she thinks she has psychotic experiences now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh. So thank you so much, Ilvana, for coming on the podcast and explaining to us about your research um, and giving us a lot more insight into what is psychosis, what happens in the brain during psychotic experiences, um, and helping us understand, I guess, where people can fit on the psychosis continuum. Um, It's been absolutely amazing to have you on the podcast. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. I had such a good time and thank you for the very interesting and thought-provoking questions. Want more neurodivergent content? Head to our page on Patreon. Our Patreon supporters receive exclusive and additional content ranging from resources, additional information on episode content, responses to listener questions, book reviews, and mental health tip sheets. You can find a link to our Patreon in the show notes and on our website, www.ndwomanpod.com. We really appreciate your support on this journey as we aim to make quality psychological and mental health care information accessible to everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast. If you have a question or would like to contact us, you can do so through our Facebook and Instagram at the name The Neurodivergent Woman Podcast or our website ndwomanpod.com. You can also email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Bye for now.